This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Winter Olympians are traveling farther than ever to train for their sports ahead of next month's games. Like aerial skier John Lillis, he lives in Park City, but just recently the Associated Press found him on a glacier in Switzerland training with his U.S. teammates. Without the snow and the cold in the places in the States, like it's normally cold, uh, we have to travel over here and uh, find a place on a glacier to get a couple of jumps off. It's just one way climate change is affecting Olympians' preparations. And it could seriously mess up the U.S. ski industry. Eddie Pels wrote about this for the AP. He lives in Denver and is in our studio. Eddie, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks. So aerials is that sport where they go off the long ramp and do flips in the air. Mm -hmm. You wrote about what happened last year when the team tried to do its early season training in Utah. How did that work out? Uh, It didn't. You know, they they do a lot of summer training on... uh, in down the water ramp, but the real gold standard of training is obviously doing it on snow. And, uh, you know, last season, um, they got zero snow training and then they flew out to China for their first event. And, uh, basically nobody landed anything and they finished very poorly. So they realized that this year going into an Olympics, you know, they, they better find a place to get on snow and not depend on, you know, waiting for it to maybe snow in Utah. Right. This is not just going through the motions. This mm-hmm. preparation really is important to how they perform at the games. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a bit more from your interview with John Lillis as he was standing in front of some uh, aerials practice. It definitely has became harder to train early season. Um, I would say before the 2014 Olympics even, we were on snow by November 10th in Park City. Um, Back looking at around the Vancouver Games, we were doing a lot more to get ready in Park City in the States early. But unfortunately, it's, it's not a possibility whatsoever. I mean, he's saying that this is a big change from even four years ago in how U.S. Olympians prepared Uh, Did you find that these athletes were surprised by how quickly things are changing? Yeah, you know, I think we had one guy who basically said, listen, this used to be something that my grandpa talked about and it could happen 20, 30 years from now. And I met him all on this glacier and literally every every day we're up there. I mean, it was gorgeous and there was snow. And halfway through pretty much all the days I was there, you would hear this kind of avalanche roar in the background and you would look around and you would see a massive chunk of the glacier falling off, which I think is called calving. And, you know, you can't deny when, when they're sitting there watching that, they're, they're wondering, some of them are saying to me, you know, I wonder if I'll be able to come to this place in, in 10 years. I mean, it's, it's right in front of them. So even Switzerland, where they could find places to practice, the, the change is hitting there as well, high in the Alps. Mm-hmm. And there were glaciers, you know, in, in France and in Austria that uh, have always been dependable, even in the middle of summer, that, that closed this year because of there was this thing called the Lucifer heat wave in Europe where everything just was very hot. So... You know, you're seeing some things. Now, does that mean that next year the summer will be as bad? No, but it certainly is a a trend that is troubling to these people who really obviously need snow and cold to make a living. Uh, Lillis also says, you see videos of people skiing on glaciers back in the 70s and 80s, and half of that glacier doesn't even exist anymore. So th- this is something they're witnessing in their lifetimes uh, how many sports, how many teams for the U.S. and elsewhere, I suppose, are running into this problem with their preparation? 
Well, pretty much everyone. I mean, when we were in Switzerland, it wasn't just the U.S. aerials team. It was the U.S. snowboarding team and the free skiing team. And then you're you're, you're looking, you're going up on the gondola and you got Canada and Finland and and uh you know Belarus i mean it's it's everybody is scrambling and what and it's interesting because this was a cool glacier that would usually have you know Switzerland would be there because it's their country right. there'd be a few dozen people and it looked like uh new year's day up in vale there i mean it was literally lines to get on the gondola and so every everybody's having to scramble to find these places and then you can kind of see the cumulative effect of this because the more you have to fly the more of a footprint that you have to make the more money you have to you know everything kind of keeps wrapping into each other and uh, they realize that you know this is not the the greatest way to uh you know positively influence climate change yeah this was one of my favorite parts of your reporting that the changes are making some of the athletes wrestle with their own impact on the climate and all of that flying around. For instance, you talk to a gold medalist snowboarder, Jamie Anderson, about that, you know, global travel that's now required. Are they doing anything about it, changing, I don't know, their lives in some regard? Well, it's a tough one. I mean, Jamie Anderson is the true definition of a tree hugger. She actually does hug trees sometimes when she needs to feel a little bit better. But there's a big conflict in her life because to make a living, she's got to get on snow. To to win the gold medal, she's got to get the training in. And, you know, if she can't wake up on November 1st and walk out her door in Colorado or wherever, then she's got to do this. So... You know, I think she loves her career, loves being outdoors and struggles with the reality that, uh, you know, all athletes have a limited window and that for the rest of her limited window, she's going to have to play this game. Doesn't make her a bad person, doesn't mean she loves nature any less, but it it definitely, uh, you know, keeps it out there in front of her. I mean, are there changes they can make? Um, There are some, you know, you can do more water training and there's... There's other ways to train and into airbags and things like that where you don't have to maybe travel so far. But the the issue with winter sports is that is that snow is the gold standard of yeah, training I mean, if it's not there. Now, listen, are there other things we can all do? Absolutely. You know, and, and Jamie Anderson's on the forefront of that, you know, the organic eating and recycling and things like that that we all do. But – in this specific industry, you not know, a lot she feels she can change. Yeah, that, uh-huh. you know, she tries, but it's not uh, perfect. Uh, so Olympians aren't able to spend as much time on the snow in the U.S. They've had to cancel competitions in Beaver Creek and other places. And recreational skiers and snowboarders also aren't able to get out as much, I presume. What does all this mean for Colorado's economy? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's gone from 99 to 2010 where there were more instances of of rough winters than good ones. There's some stats that say, you know, that it cost it cost a billion dollars over that time. Um, John Lewis was a great example. He's a restaurant owner in Utah. Utah and Colorado share a lot of the same issues. Well, if, you know, John's business goes great when there's a ski season, right? Well, if ski season is 24 to 26 weeks and it gets you, you lose 10 days at the front and 10 days at the back, that hurts his restaurant. That's a micro thing. We'll take it and multiply it times the hotels, 
the other restaurants, the ski rental places, and and it has a potential. You know, this is a this is a multi million dollar. It's it's a two billion dollar business. So and Lillison, yeah. in a way, is getting hit twice. He's getting hit as an Olympian, and he's getting hit as a, a restaurant owner. I think in Park City, the ski. Town. Yeah, in Park yeah. City, mm-hmm. Utah. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's just it's tough. You know, this could also change which cities can host the Winter Olympics. So the New York Times mm-hmm. just reported on a study that said before long, nine cities that have already hosted the Winter Games may not be cold enough to do so again in the future. That includes Sochi and Vancouver. How much of an issue do you think that will be? I, I think that is a, that's an important issue, and that's a study that has, you know, gets sort of redone every few years. So oh. my my theory on this or the reality of it is that if they give you if they say you've got to create snow and keep it usable to do the Olympics for two weeks in February, almost anybody can pull that off. Okay. But snowmaking, you know, is a tough deal. You've got to have the temperature be cold enough. And there are now a number of cities that aren't cold enough or guaranteed to be cold enough. And you can also run into things like in Vancouver, the, the the snowboarding was in this place where it never got cold enough and it rained. And so you're, you're trucking in tons and tons of snow to build, to, to build your question. runs. And you're pouring literally millions of gallons of chemical down there to keep the snow from melting and things like that. So you can, you, we can go out there in our part, in your parking lot here and build a half pipe. The question is, how much effort and and environmental degradation do we have to put up with to keep it frozen for two weeks? And so, what is the quality, I suppose? Of yeah, and, I, and, and that is a big issue, too. I remember yeah. in Sochi, weren't they, like, putting blankets on the snow to keep it from melting? They they do blankets, that, you know, and then uh, they do a lot of uh, chemicals that, you know— raise the free the melting temperature or lower the melting temperature and um, all those things you know yeah you can still hold the olympics but at what cost basically thanks for sharing your reporting with us appreciate it thanks for having me eddie pels is a national sports writer for the ap he's covered the olympics since 2000 and lives in denver pels wrote with john lester about climate change disrupting olympic preparations their stories are at cpr.org More now on one athlete's preparations off the snow and ice. We met her at Colorado's Olympic Training Center. CPR's Rachel Estabrook has her story. Veronica Day will be the first person to tell you that she didn't get into this to be famous. I'm never going to get any name recognition doing skeleton. Skeleton is the one where she barrels down an icy track headfirst on her stomach, going 80 miles an hour. Yes, with a helmet. It can be weird, I guess, that I'm like competing on the highest level and then have no one even know what I'm doing. (laughs) But, I mean, you could say that about any other niche sport, and there are a lot of them. Niche, like most Americans only pay attention to it for a couple of weeks every four years. Not too long ago, even Veronica Day did not know that much about skeleton. She was a track and field athlete in college. Not good enough to go to the next level, she says. But in 2010... I was sitting in my college apartment with my three teammates, and we were watching women's bobsled. It's the final day of competition at the Whistler Sliding Center, the final two heats. The announcer would say, oh, so-and-so ran track for this university. And so all my roommates were track athletes. We're like, we run track. We can 
We can make a bobsled team. The rest were joking, but Day was serious. She filled out an application, found Skeleton was a better fit, and within a year, she was on the track in Lake Placid for her first run. And it's the most fun you'll ever have. I mean, you don't have no idea what you're doing. The coach just, like, kicks you off the side of the mountain and is like, have fun, see you at the bottom, bye. And, um... Finished the run, I was like, take me up, I'm going again. She made the national team and moved to Colorado. There is no ice track here, but Day can do the rest of her training to prepare for the all-important push start, those first few seconds before she dives onto the skeleton sled. In the training center's main gym, Day sprints on a lane of artificial turf. On one leg, she's going faster than most people can on two. And then I just did some accelerations and some... uh, jumping drills and now I will go into the sled pushes and then sprints at the end. This is a sprawling facility where even the dumbbells are tattooed with Olympic rings. A 50-meter sprint track has pressure plates underneath to dissect how an athlete runs and one room here can mimic almost any environment in the world in terms of temperature and altitude. Winter and summer Olympians and Paralympians live here. There's about 90 of them, plus a few dozen more who come for a few weeks at a time for sport-specific training camps. Day's been around long enough that one look in the cafeteria is enough to tell which sport they do. Gymnasts are just perpetually flexing, but not really, like... (laughs) Also, all the men's gymnasts have great hair. Day met her boyfriend here. He's not a gymnast, but he does have good hair. Jimmy Moody is a fencer, and he says everything at the training center becomes a competition. Dining hall meals is, oh, how much are you eating? Oh, I could eat more. Oh, I can eat faster. And it's just laundry. Like, who can do their laundry the fastest? (laughs) No one's laundry was cleaner or smelled better. So, you know. Anything is a competition, even which sport is craziest. If you talk to other athletes and you tell them that you do skeleton they'll be like wow you're crazy and I'm like you're a ski jumper you're also crazy <laughs> so there's kind of this like common level of of craziness among us like most olympians day does not get paid to train she works most of the year and she says skeleton athletes are their own mechanics so day travels to competitions with a suitcase full of power tools and sometimes she's her own physical therapist After the workout, on the floor at home, she stretches out her legs and puts little plastic cups down on each thigh and attaches a plunger. It feels like a vacuum is sucking the skin off of your body. And it leaves red circles. When you do them on your back, you look like a stegosaurus. So you've got a whole bunch running down your spine. The therapy is called cupping. It's supposed to relieve pain and help recovery. Day's not sure it actually works, but she needs any advantage she can get. The U.S. Olympic skeleton team will be chosen next week, and Veronica Day needs to be one of the top two or three women in the country to make it. Whoever makes it to Pyeongchang for the U.S., they'll have a slight advantage this year. Three of the top skeleton finishers from Sochi are Russian. They were caught up in the doping investigation and have been banned from the Olympics for life. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. In some ways, it's like the earthquake that devastated Haiti eight years ago happened just yesterday. There are people still in temporary housing, looking for work, or struggling to get clean water. That's despite $13 billion in aid. One Colorado nonprofit leader has been going to Haiti since the 2010 quake and says he's found a model for rebuilding. Wynn Wallet leads the Colorado Haiti Project. And Wynn, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to hearken back to what it was like 
at the time of the quake eight years ago. This is from an ABC News report. It is hard to imagine a country less able to cope with a devastating earthquake. The first pictures are coming in tonight of what is already being called a major catastrophe. You can see crumpled buildings and crushed cars. Photographs that you provided us make it look like a war zone right after the quake. What did you see the first time you landed in Haiti in 2010? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a completely devastated and, and devastating landscape. Um, you know, people had experienced loss in every imaginable way, um, losing family members, losing their homes, losing their livelihoods. Um, and it was just hundreds of thousands of people um, taking it a day at a time, looking out for each other, but just facing, uh, you know, impossible circumstances um, and uh, and trying to make it to the next day. The scale of death and injury is mind-boggling. 220,000 people died in the quake. 300,000 people were injured. I imagine if if you're in Haiti, you know someone who passed away. You know someone who was injured. Sure. I mean, everybody there, as I said, everybody there was touched by the disaster and the tragedy. Um, and at the time after the earthquake, you know, these people were, were suffering from loss of, of every of every fashion, of every manner, um, grieving while fighting to meet basic needs and, and figure out what could be next. Hmm. Uh, you were there uh, just last month, I think. What does it look like? What are the biggest needs in Haiti now, eight years after the quake? Sure. Um, well, you know, there's pockets of progress um, here and there, and I hope we get to speak to that a little bit. Uh, oh, absolutely. But um, but for sure, I, I mean, healthcare is a huge challenge, access to, to water and basic needs. Housing is a huge challenge. Um, and whenever I get the chance to chat about Haiti, you know, I always kind of think of what my Haitian friends in Haiti would say and, and what they would think is sort of the the missed part of the story. Um, and I, I think most of my friends and particularly sort of young would-be, should-be professionals um, in Haiti um, speak to just a lack of jobs and a lack of opportunity in the country that really persists. You know, when I when I first got to Haiti, um, I was living and working at a hospital, um, and uh, and I remember there was a young man that came in uh, as a patient. His name was Richard, and he was in critical condition when he came, when he arrived, um, and he quickly de- decompensated, um, and his heart stopped. And so the staff, and it was St. Luke's Hospital. They do wonderful work. I don't uh, work with them full-time anymore, but uh, they do a great job. Um, but so, you know, he, he needed CPR. And so the doctors and nurses gave CPR, and they intubated this patient, which means inserted breathing tube. And so he was on a ventilator, mechanical ventilator, which then stopped working. And so then he was being ventilated by hand for 36 hours. This, you know, nurses and doctors taking turns ventilating this patient with an ambu bag, giving air by hand. 36 hours later, he comes to and he's strong enough to speak. And my friend Raphael, who um, is a remarkable Haitian guy who was uh, managing the hospital, he sort of motions to him with his finger to come say something to Raphael with his, his first breath. And Raphael bends down and, uh, and he whispers, I need a job. And, I mean, to imagine the mindset of, of a young man that had just undergone that experience and his first thought is, look, this is a functioning place and they're employing people and maybe this is a way I can support my family to ask after work with your first breath just kind of shows what people are going through and how eager Haitian people are to work and to find opportunity. Yeah, the resilience, but also just the desire, I imagine, for meaning and to contribute this really is the, the poorest country in the Americas still. Uh, there was a heartbreaking story in the New York Times this week about Haitians who are too poor to bury their dead. 
Um, but it's not like Haiti was ignored by the international community. It got more than $13 billion in aid. There have been several investigations, though, into what happened to that money, what went wrong in the recovery and rebuilding efforts. Uh, one reason, apparently, is the U.N., uh, also brought cholera to Haiti. That added insult to injury. And the country has far more than its fair share of political problems. What else do you think was misguided about the way aid money was spent in Haiti? Sure. So, I mean, I think in the days right after the disaster, you know, p- people were doing search and rescue and saving lives and, and doing really heroic things. Both the international community and Haitian people were ending each day with bloody knuckles because they've been you know, digging in the debris and in the rubble looking for family members or friends or strangers. Um, but then after that, you get to you know, kind of the pivot point where you're starting to think more about longer-term development and a response leading into um, you know, sort of a deeper impact, longer development. And, and I think two things um, didn't happen quickly enough, um, things that really absolutely had to happen. And one is that local organizations, locally led, community-based groups um, needed to be um, a driving force in implementing aid programs. Um, and so that's, you know, that way the money is all invested in the local economy and it stays there. Um, those are the people that know the community best. And then also they're the ones that are best suited to make uh, a temporary sort of acute response turn into a longer term effort. Indeed, NPR found one problem was an over-reliance on foreign companies to do the rebuilding, which, by the way, also had higher costs than if they'd used local folks on the ground. Sure. And, and so, I mean, one example from the work of the Colorado Haiti Project, you know, last year, Hurricane Matthew was totally devastating to the Southern Peninsula, um, which is where we work in the Neep region. It's, it wasn't cataclysmic on the scale of the earthquake, but it was a, a very serious disaster with, with really serious effects. And another blow. Exactly. And so, you know, our response to that was to work with our long-term on-the-ground local partners. Um, and they said, you know what? We need to start a seed bank. We need to help local farmers replant immediately or we're going to have, you know, a food crisis very quickly. And so that was initially an effort to help farmers replant with staple crops. It was driven by Hurricane Matthew and a response to it. But because it was done through local structures, 14 months later, that seed bank still exists and it's evolved and it's still employing people. And it's no longer let's help people, you know, replant these staple crops. It's it's diversified and it's local Haitian agronomists giving trainings and access, you know, to seed that is hard to come by. So it's a disaster response done locally that then turns into a longer term and impactful thing. I see. It's uh, a more holistic view than simply recovery because you have your eye on what life is like once things are back to normal, if there's such a thing, and how people might thrive from that point on. Does a seed bank allow people to simply subsist, or does that allow them to sell these staple crops and earn a living? It's both. And and even from the beginning um, of that effort, and again, because it was done with and through local organizations, it was very careful to not undercut local markets, local market men and women. So they were part of the solution, part of the process, thinking about the local economy, how our help you know, could coexist and in fact reinforce that rather than go around it. And uh, an example of what you called earlier pockets of progress, uh, you also see progress in education and that is a focus for the Colorado Haiti Project as well. 
Sure. So that's the foundational program of the Calarda Haiti Project. We, we've been working in the same community for 29 years. It's called Petitu de Nip. Um, it's founded by three Episcopal priests. And St. Paul School is the foundational program of the Colorado Haiti Project. So it started as a very simple school in a lean-to structure. And now we're educating 300 students um, with an education that is, you know, uh, in accordance with and through the, the state curriculum, but also adds a really strong agricultural education component. So they're learning agriculture both in the classroom and also in our garden out back with a local agronomist. And that agronomist goes to the families, to the homes of the students, you know, so they're working on sort of gardening homework projects where they're helping their families be more productive. There's also an entrepreneurship uh, program within the school and a focus on girls and women's empowerment. Um, so the success of St. Paul's um, has also led to these other community engagements and community health and the seed bank and has allowed us to have these deep relationships that, that uh, are impactful in the community. Well, let's contrast that, these pockets of progress, with, with you know, what we have seen often about Haiti in the news uh, the the failures of aid there, this sense of hopelessness. Uh, do do you see evidence that people have walked away? They're just sort of throwing their hands up when it comes to Haiti, and and does that frustrate you? I really hope not. Um, it absolutely frustrates me. Um, there is a there's a a YouTube talk that's given by a Nigerian writer named Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a beautiful writer, and she talks about the danger of the single story. Um, and just how toxic it can be when a person or a place um, is always referred to in, in the same way and in the same terms. My and Haiti fits that bill, doesn't it? It feels deeply and sadly true um, in Haiti. Um, it's so rare that a Haitian person is the protagonist in a story about Haiti. It's so often that something's happening to Haiti or a Haitian person is sort of peripherally involved in a story about his or her own country. And the reality on the ground is so different than that. It's a group of people that are constantly moving and innovating and looking for opportunity um, and problem solving and are absolutely controlling their own destiny on the ground. And it's it's like they're invisible and it's really frustrating. Um, and so that movement and that aliveness um, that's, that's in Haiti and that is sort of contagious um, is something to celebrate. It's not to glorify conditions of poverty that 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 make that sort of behavior necessary but it's to it's to glorify the response to that poverty um and 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 celebrate the people that are fighting against it which are Haitian people one more thing that happened recently that could throw a wrench in recovery is that uh, president trump announced in november about 60,000 Haitians who've been living in the U.S. with temporary protected status are going to lose that status next year. Some of these people have been here since the quake in 2010. Uh, I understand it probably came as very difficult news to them, but their stay in the U.S. was always supposed to be temporary as a way to respond to the disaster. So I wonder, is, is there a time when you'd imagine it would be appropriate for those with temporary protected status to return to Haiti? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would just say... Um, the Colorado Haiti Project isn't an advocacy or policy organization, but speaking just for myself, um, you know, to me, all those challenges I refer to, unemployment, a lack of clean water, lack of basic needs and infrastructure. Um, when I read the, what the State Department said about the decision that basically Haiti's in a place to accept these folks, uh, it doesn't ring true for me, at least in this moment. And, and I, I understand that there's a need to define what that progress would look like. Um, but I don't think, I mean, you have to be able to uh, specifically define it to know that it doesn't feel like they're in that place. Is that, it, that's my view on it. Is it possible that those returning to Haiti might bring innovation with them? 
Um, it's possible. Um, I, I also think another thing to consider is the fact that remittances, you know, money sent from the U.S. to Haiti um, makes up a, a significant percentage of the GDP in Haiti. So not only are these folks going back to a place where um, there's not a lot of jobs and opportunity, but these folks are sending money to families in Haiti that are, are you know, relying on this direct capital to, you know, it helps mom put food on the table. It, it helps cousin Joseph start his, his own business. And actually, Access to capital is a real challenge in Haiti. So taking that away, in fact, could could make the situation even worse. Thank you for being with us, for sharing these pockets of progress. Thanks very much for having me. Wynne Walland is executive director of the Colorado Haiti Project, which works with local leaders and organizations on the ground in that country. It has been eight years since an earthquake killed 220,000 people on the island. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Husband and husband Matt and Blue have a big following on YouTube, over a quarter of a million subscribers. Actor Matt Dallas, who used to have a show on ABC Family, and musician Blue Hamilton vlog about their daily lives, whether it's home improvement or raising a kid. Well, their videos started featuring Colorado. Where are we at? The ice castle that Dylan. So that was the ice castle's... Dylan, Colorado. Colorful, cold. The little igloo was fun. Did you actually get back in there? No, because by the time I went to go in, you guys were coming out. The reason Colorado now plays so prominently? The couple moved here to the Front Range with their four-year-old son, Crow. We're going to talk about how Crow came into their lives and whether Matt and Blue see themselves as gay role models. And welcome to you both. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Uh, For someone who's never seen one of your videos, they often start with four words. Peace to the world. Peace to the world. Uh, Tell me about the decision to open up your lives to YouTube. This was before Crow came into your lives. Give us a sense of why. Yeah, I think we originally started our YouTube channel just because we wanted to have a platform where a a creative space where we could essentially sort of just create or do whatever we wanted and be able to connect with people all over the world and sort of share our story and like put some good vibes out into the world. How would you answer that? I would agree with that. (laughs) Was this a discussion when a couple says we're going to put our lives to the world? Yeah. I mean, I I pressured Matt for a long time to start a YouTube channel because I thought there was something for him to connect with his fan base as well. Uh, Just being a creative person. And I think it just evolved over time into what it is today. Yeah. I think a lot of it, too, is like Blue Blue and I originally uh, sort of bonded like in early on in our relationship over creating and just making things together where whether it meant like building birdhouses or whatever so this was an opportunity for us to like really create and i don't know try and i don't know share something a little bit more personal and hopefully special with the world i mean it occurs to me that you matt had had a lot of experience with like big television you know and corporate television and large productions and this is a way of being more of a maker yourself 
in contrast to, you know, to the agents and the, the, the gaffers and all that. Yeah, that actually, uh, that actually was a large part of it as well. It's like having been in Los Angeles for over a decade and being in like the grind of auditioning, you know, seven days a week and just like, go, uh, the go 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 it was an opportunity for us to sort of like take control of our creative destiny and to not have to i don't know put our sort of put it all into somebody else's hands so why the move to colorado you had been in los angeles arizona for a time well i'm originally from colorado i'm from florissant so i've always wanted to come back here uh but i think that we were in la and it just uh, it felt like it was time to move on. Felt like it wasn't a right fit for our family. Uh, we had lived in there for uh, LA for like 20 years, I think. We lived you there for a long yeah. time. Uh, so it was just, we wanted a place where there was lots of activities to do, that the people were cool, the environment was beautiful. And Colorado's always been home to me. But yeah. And as you know, you're not alone in feeling that about Colorado or in moving here for that matter. Yeah. Uh, your son Crow is often part of your videos. Um, and you spoke about this in a video from 2016. We got a call basically saying, look, we have a kid that needs a place to stay. We were told that this kid was going to be placed with us as a foster situation, temporary. During the day, we got another phone call and that phone call was, no, he's coming to live with you and we only want to put him in a home that wants to adopt. Are you willing to adopt this kid? And we had to give a yes or no answer right then without seeing the kid, without knowing anything other than his age and that he was healthy. We didn't know his background, nothing about him. Um, and so we basically looked at each other and we said, yeah. You can't see Matt looking lovingly into Blue's eyes as they listen <laughs> as they listen to that that clip. It's quite the leap, isn't it? I mean, you thought maybe we'll foster, then you understand this is going to be adoption, and the stork comes and drops a child like that, and you have to be ready. Yeah, I think that I don't know. I think our lives have been just a series of things that the universe pushes us towards, and in that scenario, I think it was just we just knew yes. We're going to take this challenge. We're going to do it. Yeah, I think a lot of most of the things in our lives have come from sort of circumstances where like that, where it's just been about taking the leap into the think less and act more. And I think like even with our YouTube channel, because I have a tendency to overthink everything, everything. and especially coming from the entertainment and being an actor, I was like, no, I can't put my life out into the Internet. And and but eventually it was like. I just had to, I don't know, just sort of let go and take the leap. And I feel like the same happened with Crow. The same happened with moving to Colorado. And I feel like most anything, and it's always led us to, I don't know, great things. Yeah, It's in st such stark contrast to what a lot of people, I think, do ahead of having a child or at least think about doing, which is looking at the budget and making sure everything is in line and really being... Um, almost methodical about it. Yeah, and we did that. Okay, we, we did. We did it, um, for the most part. But I feel like with any time, especially like with having kids, you're never going to feel ready. Uh -huh. So you just you get as prepared as you can, and then you say yes. We have reported that Colorado is predicting a shortage of about 1,200 foster families over the next two years, and that the pool of families really needs to be more diverse to reflect. Uh, in many ways, the, the children in the foster system. So 
There's a search for black families and Latino families and a search for LGBT families. Uh, What do you think it would take to get more families into the pool and to diversify that pool? Well, I think that's one of the beautiful things about social media and the Internet is that a lot of it is just sharing stories and being able to sort of hopefully inspire others to like at least be open to different avenues and you know that was one of the things initially when blue and i had talked about having kids i was pretty set on using a surrogate and having our own biological children but he was really adamant about at least exploring the foster to adopt uh avenue and as we started to go through the process i realized pretty quickly that that was the right uh uh, the right way for us and um and so hopefully we that's part of the, the youtube channel we were hoping by sharing our story that it would hopefully open other people's eyes and open their minds to going this route your most recent youtube video uh, takes you up to genesee in the foothills outside denver we have to find the treasure here somewhere where is the treasure i think down here this rock our mission today is to find bison, which Crow calls treasure. We're going to find treasure. I'm going to find bison. That's our only goal today. One of the oddities of Colorado is that Denver owns a herd of bison. Did you find them, Blue? We did find them. We did not get up and close like we wanted to, but we certainly did find them. Okay. It's an easy find. You also explore Idaho Springs and have Colorado-style pizza at Bojo's in this video. It got me thinking, you know, I have a lot of friends who are having kids right now and they're doing a lot of soul searching around how much they should put their children on social media. And should they tag them if there's a photo of them on Facebook, you you know, considering the child's privacy and what those images might mean in a decade. Have you struggled with that? Because Crow is so prominent in your videos. Every day. Every day. Every video. Every time we pull the camera out. It's a... it's something that we talk with him about. He's very young, but he's a very smart kid. Uh, and we never put him in front of the camera if he doesn't want to. He's very, you know, he's his own person and he'll walk out of the frame. He'll walk away. There are times where he just is like, no, yeah, not now. Absolutely. Okay. Um, but it is something, you know, we film a lot of footage and there's, you know, we try and police that as much as possible as far as you know letting him be out there to help inspire and letting him be himself uh but also protecting him and you know not showing everything yeah we're very like selective about what we'll post that he's in and that's like we've what's something that you'd leave on the cutting room floor I mean, there's been even times where there'll be funny, like where he'll be upset about something and it'll be cute and funny from anything anybody who's been a parent would relate to it and think it's funny. But I don't necessarily want my son to look back and to see something that he might not be thrilled that was like yeah. existed out. And, and I'm trying to think of just even things. like down to personal things, you know, his bedroom. We never really, yeah. you know, since we've moved, we don't show his bedroom. We don't show personal things. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, so he feels an ownership of his own life. life. Yeah. And you've asked us not to say like exactly where you live uh, along the front range uh, with the idea of, of keeping some privacy here. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and I'm speaking with YouTube sensations, Matt Dallas and, and Blue Hamilton. <laughs> yes. Their YouTube channel has more than a quarter of a million subscribers. They've recently moved to Colorado Uh, Matt, people may remember you from the ABC family TV show, Kyle XY. It aired from 2006 to 2009. I've never seen anyone like Kyle before. He can't understand the simplest things. 
but does calculus like it's two plus two. Kyle is not human. How did you do that? What? You jumped off the roof. Tell me he's not an alien. Who is Kyle XY? He was you. Uh, yeah. And uh, Blue, you're a musician. Your latest single is called Supermoon. You're very interesting. I'm, I'm feeling like an underachiever as I go through all that you're involved in. Are you gay role models? Ooh, I mean, that's a tough one. I don't think we ever, like, set out to be gay role models. We've certainly I, never talked about it. Yeah, it's... Um, I don't know. Like, I hope that we can, in sharing our stories, will inspire people to sort of, I don't know... Live their life being true to themselves and kind to other people. You know what I mean? That's what the mission is. I'm glad you said true to themselves. Because isn't there an aspect of putting your life on YouTube in which you are going to make it look a little bit better than it actually is? As social media in general. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that the, the, it is funny because there are qu- quite a bit of like gay families and I mean just families in general that have YouTube channels but we too try to show the sort of like everyday like some there's a lot of sort of bickering on our channel and of course it's like (laughs) in real life it's much it's even more but uh, but we too try to at least show it a little bit so that it feels real and that we can show that we are real people and we do have real arguments and I don't know yeah and uh, you know what I think that when you know, there's people throughout history that I look up to and the things that I remember about them are the good that they do. Uh, we've all done bad or, you know, but I think it is about putting the positive out there and influencing through positive. Blue Hamilton and Matt Dallas, their YouTube channel, Matt and Blue, has over a quarter of a million subscribers. They have recently moved to the front range and we've linked to a few of their recent videos at CPR.org. Big changes will land soon at Denver International Airport. Billions of dollars in upgrades and gate expansions. But is all this building necessary for the nation's newest airport? Here's CPR's business reporter, Ben Marcus. When the city opened the airport in 1995, there was harsh criticism about how big it was, how far away it was, how much it cost. More than 20 years later, those concerns have faded away as the airport now bursts at the seams with passengers. Kim Day is Denver International's CEO. She says, thankfully, city leaders had the foresight to put the airport out where they did, not just expand the old one. Build an airport for the future, and you couldn't do it if you didn't go 25 miles away, right? Air travel has boomed since DIA opened. More than 60 million passengers flew through the airport last year. The problem? It wasn't designed to handle that volume. So, first, a major redo of the Great Hall, where the security lines are now. Day is standing on an upper level, and she's looking down at the mass of travelers inching through the long lines. She says when the airport first opened, this area looked very different. 
it was trees and water and places to sit. It was lovely. Uh, but, but, you know, this is obviously a critical operation in the airport. We can't get rid of it. But what we want to do is move it to a place where it's not so exposed. Post 9-11, this is not an optimal setup. A state-of-the-art security check system will be built, moved off of the hall floor. The space will open up. And since passengers will have already gone through security, they can hang out and spend some money in the hall's updated shops and restaurants. Denver City Council approved the Great Hall contract for $1.8 billion. Around the corner, another $1.5 billion worth of construction will start at about the same time. That'll add 39 new gates to the existing concourses and expand the airport capacity up to 80 million passengers a year. Kim Day says, don't worry, travelers won't even notice that construction. It'll all happen behind the magic curtain. The airport is more than two decades old, but actually that's really young in airport years. It is surprising that they are already requiring gate expansions. That's Earl Heffentreyer, an analyst for Moody's, a credit rating agency. He says air travel has taken off everywhere, and airports across the U.S. have neglected improvements. Airports look both dated and in some ways became functionally obsolete. So what we see now is that some airports are starting to catch up just on improving their facilities to get them to a better state of good repair, and some are actually expanding. Almost every major U.S. airport has some multi-billion dollar project going on. And so from a competitive standpoint, DIA just can't stay put. Heffentreyer says they analyzed the debt at DIA, and the airport is in a great position to fund new construction. The original bonds to build the airport in the 90s will begin to retire soon. Most people think DIA's Great Hall redesign and gate expansion are good ideas, but not everyone is cheering. What they're doing is, is a yes. How they're doing it is a question mark. Rafael Espinoza is a Denver City councilman. He laments one major provision of the Great Hall deal. It's cost. It's a public-private partnership where much of the risk of the project, if there are delays or big redesigns, is on the developer. The city, though, is paying for that peace of mind. We're paying premiums to sort of avoid the embarrassment of airport past, right? The first airport was a year behind and a billion dollars over budget while we were waiting for that baggage system. Um, But we survived that. And we thrived despite it. Espinoza says there are talented people running the airport, and he'd have liked to see them manage the construction and take on the risks themselves. Back at the Great Hall, the head of Denver International, Kim Day, says the contracts are in the best interests of the city. This is a -a one-of-a-kind massive project that will be run by some of the most talented airport contractors in the world. This is going to be so complex, we wanted someone else to take that risk on. Quite honestly, if this was a standalone building, we probably never would have gone this way. Travelers, brace yourselves. Construction begins this summer and won't wrap up until 2021. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Finally today, I was watching the Golden Globes, and one of the movies up for an award got me wondering about Denver. P.T. Barnum, at your service. I'm putting together a show. And I need a star. Hugh Jackman stars as P.T. Barnum, the greatest showman, and that made me think of the Denver neighborhood called Barnum. It's on the west side. And it is named for P.T. Barnum although he never lived here, and no rumors that he housed animals here are false. So why is it named after him? 
We ask Denver historian Phil Goodstein. He put the money into the area through his son-in-law, William T. Booktel. But other than the name Barnum, it's a remnant of him as the investor. But it never really took off according to either Barnum's or Bucktel's dreams. This was in the late 1800s as Barnum's circus toured the country. It did come to Colorado. Barnum had hoped the neighborhood named for him would become ritzy, but it remained working class for a long time. Of course, these days, no Denver neighborhood stays affordable for long. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Glad you could spend time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is me. Look out, cause here I come. 